I'm going to invite you to have a seat. And as you do, I want to welcome you to Hagerstown Church. It really is a privilege to uh, be worshiping with you this morning. It's a privilege for me to open the Word of God, as I often uh, have the chance to do and to preach to you. We're working through a sermon series right now, Our Values. A few weeks ago, we looked at this idea that we are a people helping people find and follow Jesus. If you're intending to, to stay here, to, to make this church your home, it would be my hope and prayer that that would not just be the aspiration of this church collectively, but you individually. That when you wake up in the morning, the type of cereal you eat, you would make that decision so that it would, in, in, in hopes that it would help you to be a people that help and follow, or people find and follow Jesus. Continue to say, well, what are, that's who we are as a church, that's who we aspire to be, but what are our values? But well, one of our values was that we, we believe that the Word of God matters here. Sadly, in so many places, the Word does not matter. And yet it has here, and, and not just for three years, but for many, many years. We pray to God that that would continue to be the case. This morning, or I'm sorry, and then the next week we looked at this idea that, that Christ is the centerpiece of our lives. That it's all about Jesus. Of course, we know that because the word of God that matters here tells us that. And those two things taken together will help us to see. They lay the groundwork for our main value that we'll look at today. And that is this. The word matters here. It's all about Jesus. And we are big picture focused. A recent article in the Smithsonian Magazine, it told the story of a young boy named Paul Gasford. This young man, this four-year-old boy, he got lost hunting for sarsaparilla on the shore of Lake Ontario in 1805. He was eager to collect six pence reward that his mother was offering for the child and his family who picked the most sarsaparilla. And so he scurried out through the, the brush, eyes peeled and, and legs pumping getting to be free of the small boat his family was using to, to move their belongings uh, from one side of the bay to the other there in Ontario. Some of the bigger kids noticed that Paul had gone missing. A staggering oversight uh, was there, and, and, and the, the true and wonderful story of Paul uh, Gasford is published, and it was published in 1826. And so if you want to learn more about this four-year-old boy that was lost, you can check that out. So I'll give you the cliff notes. After a three-day search, Gasford's parents gave him up for dead. The chances of him being found again, this four-year-old boy, very, very slim. How could he survive multiple nights exposed in a strange place? But this young little boy, Paul, he was no ordinary kid. Instead of falling apart when he realized that he had been lost, he remembered the adults saying that Niagara Falls lay 40 miles away and he decided to complete the final leg of his journey on his own. And so he found the lake and he followed the coastline. In the evenings he would dig holes on the beach and he would snuggle into that sand and try to keep warm. He would stick a stick in the ground pointing in the direction that he was supposed to go. In case the next morning when he awoke he was disoriented. He would nibble on grapes when he was hungry, but not too many because he remembered his mother saying, if you eat too many, it will sour your stomach. Can you imagine the look on the, the faces of those in that city when he sauntered in the into town? 
the place literally exploded with celebration. By God's grace and cool wits that this young boy, four years old, was able to see and focus on the big picture over that 40-mile hike. The importance of seeing the big picture, it really, it can't be overstated. The importance of being able to see and latch on to the big picture is vitally important, not just in the life of a little boy who is lost, but also in the life of a church. And if we miss the big things that the big picture focus affords us, if we neglect them, then danger is ahead for us as a church. You see, big picture focus is more important, or it's, it's important in areas more than just personal survival. It's, more, it's important more than just in history, but also for this church. And so our main idea, we are a big picture focused church. We've said it for a while now. We've demonstrated it for even longer. That Jesus came to build his church and we as his church are committed to joining him in that work. And how will we do that? How have we done that? We have and we will continue to do that through personal evangelism, through developing leaders, through planting churches locally, nationally, internationally, as well as working in local partnerships here in our own community. We're a big picture focused church. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Colossians. We'll typically work through a book of the Bible here at Hagerstown Church. We've been for some time working through Mark. We took a, a little bit of a break and worked through Philippians back toward the end of last year. And this year, before we jump back into Mark and finish that up, we're taking this look at who we are as a church, which is fitting. As a church, has just, as two churches have just merged together and we are trying to figure out who we are and where we're going as we move forward. This morning we'll use Colossians as a launching point. Really, we'll start there by looking and seeing a biography, a sketch of a life and how it was big picture focused. So let's get started. Colossians chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 3 to 8 if you'll follow along on uh, the screen. This is what the Word of God says. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it's bearing fruit and increasing, as it does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Let's ask God to bless the reading of his word. Father, as we do every week, we turn our attentions, our hearts, our minds, Father, ultimately our affections to you. Father, we know that your word is life. Your word provides faith. So we come to it now in search of these things, and we ask your blessing upon them. Father, we ask it explicitly in the name of Jesus. Would you bless this time together for your glory and for our joy? Amen. 
take a tour, this idea, big picture focus. We are big picture focused. I've got three B's for you this morning. First is a biography. The second is the basics. And third, some benefits. And so we'll, we'll look at a life that really exemplifies this big picture focus. And not just one man's life, the life of Paul, but we'll look at some others around him. The church at Colossae and the, the saints and what we know of them. And even this dear brother, Epaphras. We'll look at their lives and we'll kind of see these lives and how they're centered on and seeing this big picture. We'll continue on to, to work to understand the basics of a big picture focus. And the basics are, in fact, basic. We'll move on to, very, to the very end and we'll close here looking quickly at some of the benefits of a big picture focus. And hopefully we'll continue in our lives collectively as a church, to embody this aspiration. Biography, basics, and benefits of big picture focus. And so first, a biography. Let me ask you this. Was there ever a man that had a clearer sense of direction and belonging than the Apostle Paul? He was resolved in the face of impossible difficulties, circumstances beyond his control, beyond his comfort level, and in the face of them, he would press on even to the end of his race. And confidently, we would be able to say that he received the commendation from the Lord. Well done, good and faithful servant. That was his aspiration. And I believe that he received it. But you know that the Apostle Paul, though, was a very intelligent man. Not only was he incredibly intelligent, but he was learned. He had common sense and he had book smarts as well. Besides all that, he had much resources at his disposal. This was a man that could literally become anything he wanted. And of course we tell that as 21st century Americans. We tell that to our children. We hear it all the time. You can do anything you want. But that wasn't always the case in this day and age. And yet for the Apostle Paul, he really could be anything that he wanted. Go anywhere. Be successful in any realm. The world was at his fingertips. Compared to his classmates and his contemporaries, he was a standout for sure. What they could never understand about him, I imagine, was why he would give up everything, all of his opportunities, all of his benefits, all of these resources and opportunities. Why would he set those to the side, put his life in danger to travel the world in a painful manner, starting little Jesus communities. I imagine they couldn't understand why he would do such a thing. Well, the answer is clear to us now that Paul had seen the big picture, as it were. The life that he was living, the, the aspirations, the, the plans that he had for his life, everything went out the window. Everything changed. It didn't make sense to his family. It maybe didn't make sense to his friends. But when he saw Jesus there on that road to Damascus, when he saw that tall tent stake there in the pole lifted up before his eyes, everything came into focus. Everything began to become clear. And from that day forward, he was a totally different man. You see, even from the beginning of his conversion to the end, Paul was a man with a big picture focus. 
He's the writer of Colossae. We understand that the, the Spirit of God has inspired him as he's writing these words. We clearly see he's a big picture man. He's spending some time writing a letter to a church that he doesn't even know. He's received word through Epaphras. He's never been to Colossae, not, not preaching the gospel at any rate. And yet he's writing this letter, taking his time, letting them know, hey, I'm praying for you on a regular basis. I'm regularly, when I think of you, I'm thanking God for you. And now I'm going to spend my time, which is very limited, and try to correct some issues that you have in your life. We looked at that last week. They were a little bit confused. They were in danger of strain in the area of Christology and the studies and doctrines of Christ. And so Paul gives his time to this church. He was a big picture focused man. What's interesting here is verse 7. It mentions a man by the name of Epaphroditus or Epaphras for short. In Acts 19, Paul finds himself preaching in Ephesus. We're not exactly sure, but we imagine, taking a little bit of uh, historical uh, liberty here, we, we imagine that maybe Epaphras or Epaphroditus was there visiting Ephesians or Ephesus from Colossae. Maybe he's there and he hears the gospel. Paul's there for some time teaching, discipling, raising up church planters and leaders within the church. So it's not beyond the realm of possibility that Paul had begun to disciple, to teach and train Epaphras. When Paul leaves and, and this young, uh, young man leaves as well, he returns back to Colossae. We know to start a Jesus community just like Paul had been doing. We're sure Regardless of whether Paul and Epaphras had spent much time together there in Ephesus, we don't know. But we are sure that Epaphras had seen the big picture as well. Something had changed in his life. His aspirations, his goal, his direction had changed. Instead of the short-sighted, small picture that he had by the work, by his teaching... We see that he had a big picture focus. And we know that he gave up a lot. Both Paul and Epaphras both gave up much, giving their lives to Christ. Idea that I have, it won't take a lot of time to unpack this. Not at this point as we look at this section of biography. But one point I want to just submit to you this morning is this. That a Christian that is big picture focused will go anywhere do anything and give up everything for Jesus. A Christian that is big picture focused, like the Apostle Paul, will go anywhere, do anything, and give up everything for Jesus. And if that's true, then it follows then that a church that is big picture focused will also go anywhere, do anything, and give up everything for Jesus. And that's what we see, not just in Paul's life, not just in Epaphras' life, but also in the collective church's life. You say, well, how do you know? Well, look at what Paul says about them. Paul says, he's speaking of their faith in Christ. He speaks of their love for the brothers. And he says all of that is founded upon, it's flowing out of their hope. Well, what is their hope? Well, their faith is in the present tense. Their faith in Christ. Their faith in God. It was existent. Their love for the saints, that horizontal relationship. 
It was present as well. And what was the basis for their faith? What was the basis for their love? Well, Paul says it was their own hope. Their forward-thinking desire for something to be true. Their dependence on a fact that they hadn't yet grasped yet. It's evidence that they too were big picture people. They saw what was before them. They saw what was ahead. There's so many in the New Testament that we could see that were big picture focused. There's so many in the Old Testament as well. And if you were to ask me this morning, well, what does it mean to be big picture focused? What are the basics of that? I'm glad you asked because I have prepared a few small segments in our time together to talk about the basics of the big picture focus. So what does it actually mean to be big picture focused? What kept Paul going? What kept Epaphras going? What changed his life? What created and stirred up this faith and love in the life of the church at Colossae? Well, it was this big picture focus comprised of these four things. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. These four components make up the big picture focus. They make up the gospel. At any point in your life, kiddos, if you were to open this Bible up, at any point in the Bible, not in your life, but it, well, I guess it applies to your life as well, but if you were to open up, you're at some point, this Bible could be broken up into these four sections. Now, I'll admit to you, creation and the fall happened very, very quickly out of the gate. In the very few, uh, first chapters of, the, of our Bible, we read about creation that God made man in his own image. God created all things, speaking them into existence. God gives, the, God gives his creation, uh, he gives the crowning uh, part of his creation, humans, he gives them this responsibility. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over them. It's not long after that section is over that the fall begins. Romans 5.12 says, there is, uh, therefore just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, death came into the world through Adam and through his sin. He says, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. And so there was this season of creation. That's one of the basics of the big picture focus. The, the world had a beginning. It had intended God had intended it for a specific purpose. And yet it fell. We fell. One man sinned. And through that, death and sin spread throughout all of mankind. And therefore, all have sinned. This is the second big tent stake. Creation and the fall. But we also read of redemption. Promised in the Old Testament. Fulfilled in the New. John 3.16 and verse 17, Jesus speaking to Nicodemus says, For God so loved the world, the world that he had created, the world that had fallen into sin. He loved that world so much that he gave his only son. The eternal second person of the Trinity, God the Son. And he gave him for what purpose, to what end, that whosoever believes in Jesus should not perish but that they would have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. 
So Paul, Epaphras, the church at Colossae, they understood these truths. They were all components in their big picture. Creation, the fall, the promise of redemption, and then the fulfillment of redemption. Alongside of that is this call for those who have been redeemed to, to further that work and work to that final act, which is restoration. But in that working through, we hear this promise. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus' disciples asking him before he ascends into heaven. He responds in this way, verse 7, Acts 1. It's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. He goes on to say, you will receive power, though, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is also a component that's part of the, the basic understanding of Paul's big picture focus. Creation, the fall, hope of redemption, and then being stewards of that gospel message, going forth as that gospel, that good news spreads throughout the entire world. And it's interesting, in Colossians 1, the passage that we read very, at the very beginning of our time, verse 6, Paul says, speaking of the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it's bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. You see, the realization of Paul's big picture focus, not just that God created, not just that the God who created was rebelled against and man fell into sin, rebellion, but also that redemption was coming and Paul was seeing himself in his big picture, in God's big picture as a messenger of that good news. Just as we are together, church. And just as Paul has said of the church at Colossae, I also say of you that since the day you've heard the gospel, it has been bearing fruit and increasing. It's the highlight of my life as a pastor. Being able to see the, the word of God work in the people of God and bear fruit. It's wonderful. But that's only the third scene that's only the third component of this big picture focus. The final piece that we all long for together, Paul himself longed for, restoration. And so those four parts, creation, the fall, redemption, and restoration. It's a passage I love to think of. I'm sure in some ways, some semblance of this vision was in Paul's mind as he was nursed back to health there, perhaps dozens of times in prisons. I imagine he thought of this scene. Revelation 9, verses 9 through 17, I'll read it for you. The revelator, John, says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to God who sits on the throne 
and to the Lamb. And all the angels are standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. The vision goes on. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these? Clothed in white robes and from where have they come? And I said to them, Sir, you know. And they said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And serve him. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to the springs of living water. And God will wipe every tear away from their eyes. You say, what, what's in Paul's mind? If he had a big picture... What is that big picture? What did Paul see? Well, Paul saw the beginning of time, the creation of all things. He saw the fall of man, the rebellion against God in the garden, the curse that flooded the earth, and all of the wicked things that came from that. And yet he came face to face with Christ who offered him redemption and called him in as a servant of that message. To go forward and to continue proclaiming it. Paul in his own lifetime saw that message expanding and redemption multiplying as it were. Finally, Paul longed to see the restoration of all things. As we see the theme of this passage there in Revelation 7. Which ends with God wiping away every tear from their eyes. What does it mean for us to be big picture people? It means for us to not consider how we can become a stronger church for our own glory. So we can change the, the tide and, and exist for a longer period of time as a body of Christians. It's not about how we can receive more glory. How we can escape pain. What does the big picture afford us? Well, that in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our difficulties, in the midst of our failing and failures, that in the midst of all of these things, we know that God has redeemed his people and that God is restoring all things to himself. And this is our hope. And so how could Paul go through his life and not be disheartened as he saw the effects of sin with those whom he preached and cared for? How could he not be distracted as, uh, as he himself embodied the fall and even said he was the chief of sinners? How could he continue to not be distracted from the, the temptations that were on either side? How could he not be discouraged as he didn't see the fruit that he always wished to see from his own personal witness and sufferings? Same questions could be asked of us. How are we as a church to continue moving forward, not being disheartened as we see the effects of the fall in our own lives? 
in our own families, in our own neighborhoods? How are we to not be disheartened? How are we to not be distracted? Our hearts are prone to wander. How are we not to be distracted by the sin that would so easily beset and tempt us? Personally and collectively. How are we to not be discouraged as we continue to pour the word over our families and over ourselves? To share the gospel with neighbors and co-workers? And how are we to go and not be discouraged when we don't see the fruit that we long to see? That leads us to the benefits of the big picture. I pray that God would change our perspective. I pray that we would also have the same resolve that the Apostle Paul did. Because of his big picture focus, he finished the fight. He was not disheartened. He wasn't distracted. And he finished the race encouraged and not discouraged. How? Well, let me give you some of the benefits of of being a big picture Christian or a big picture church. The first is this. When you're a big picture church, when you're a big picture focused church, it trains your eyes on Jesus. It trains your eyes on Jesus. I think of Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. The writer says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It's so easy in this life to become distracted. It's so easy in this life to look at the difficult things and even the tempting things. And yet the writer here in Hebrews chapter 12 says that we are to lay aside every weight. We're to put off the sin that clings so closely to us. We're to run with endurance the race. That's set before us, and we do that by looking to Jesus. One of the benefits of being a big picture church is we see that the center tent stake in our big picture is Jesus Christ himself. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. The founder and the perfecter of our faith. We talked about that last week. It's all about Jesus. Story in 2 Chronicles I found, is, I found so encouraging and challenging for me. For, uh, chapter 20, it tells the story of the, 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 uh, the nation uh, of, uh, actually of Judah. Uh, there in Jerusalem, King Jehoshaphat, he, he's there in the city. He gets word that he's about to be surrounded by a, an incredible army of the Edomites. There as he just looks at what's around him, he looks safe. He's in the city, but he, he finds out as, he, as his picture gets a little bigger, he, he finds out that it also involves the Edomites who are less than 30 miles away. Walk coming up uh, the Dead Sea Valley up through En Gedi and they're heading toward Jerusalem. He begins to panic. They come onto his scene or, or screen. He's panicking. Obviously he's worried. He gathers the people there on the Temple Mount. They spend some time praying and he says this, God, we are in a bad way. 
but you have promised that you would protect us. And so he calls out to God and says, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. It's one of the benefits of being a big picture church. You say, well, I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go forward. I don't know how we're going to see victories. I don't know how we're going to take ground. I don't know how we're going to regain the ground that we've lost in our own families, in our own neighborhoods. We as a church, would we not take the words right out of Jehoshaphat's mouth and say, we don't know what to do, God, but our eyes are on you. As it relates to the mission partnerships that we'll make, the budget that we will approve, the missionaries that we'll send, the deacons that we will appoint. We don't know what to do, God, but our eyes are on you. Revelation 7 is such a, a big picture passage because it's that exact thing. If you notice, in that reading, you had this great multitude, people from every tribe and tongue and nation. They're all gathered around what? They're gathered around the throne. And who are they resting their eyes on? Who are they singing about? Who are they looking to for comfort and for joy? Who are they giving glory to if not the Lamb himself, Jesus? One of the benefits of being a big picture church is that it trains our eyes on Jesus. And we see that he is the author. He's the one who started this. He's the one who completed it. We look to him for the restoration of all things. We look to him to spend the rest of our days making much of him. And so the big picture, it trains our eyes on Jesus. But not only does it train our eyes on Jesus, but it challenges us to hold nothing back. When you really see the big picture, when you see the starting point and the ending point, and all the things in between, it helps us to know when to cash in. It helps us to know when to spend and when to hold back. Think of Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 and following. Jesus tells us the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Sneaky man. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and he buys that field. He sells everything he has in hopes of purchasing that one field. Imagine husbands, wives walking out of church today, seeing an open house sign, walking into that, uh, ho that home and thinking, man, the, the wife thinks, man, this place is a dump. And the husband says, yeah, well, I don't disagree. He uh, begins to open up some cabinets and he looks and he look, goes into the, uh, the, the, to the garage and he gets up into the attic and he sees an incredible treasure. He comes down, he's shaking. Stumbles down the steps, finds his wife, walks out, and she says, what are we doing? You don't like the house? He says, no, I love it, and we've got business to do. Promptly begins to sell everything that they have. Why? To buy this dump. Why would he do such a thing? Because in joy, he knows that what he has an opportunity to gain is far greater than what he will lose. Jesus goes on and gives us a this similar story from another angle. He says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. Who, on finding one pearl of great value, he goes and sells everything that he had and he buys that one pearl. 
kind of gives the idea of this stamp collector. He's been collecting stamps his whole life. And he finds this one stamp. And he says, everything that I've collected before now is nothing compared to this stamp. And he sells it in order to gain that one stamp, that one pearl, as Jesus tells the story. As a commentary on these two verses, consider a journal entry from Jim Elliott, a missionary to Ecuador, where he said this, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. How does a big picture focus help us? Well, it, 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 it reminds us that this life is not the end. It reminds us that we're not trying to, to be the church that dies with the most toys so that when we die, we win. In the same way, on a smaller individual level, it reminds the Christian that this life is not about this life, but it's about the next. And this life is about Jesus Christ and about worshiping and serving him in the next. Jesus was faithful to remind us that this world was passing away and everything in it. And that we are to be sure that what we brought, or that having brought nothing into this life, we will take nothing out of it. And so we're not fools. As we see the big picture, we see where it started, we see where it ended, we're not a fool if we give up what we cannot keep to gain what we cannot lose. This is a benefit of a big picture focus. It's a benefit. A third benefit, it keeps discouragement at bay. It keeps discouragement at bay. I'm reminded of Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 and following. The writer says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. This is a principle. This is a law that God has built into this life. That you reap what you sow. When you reap, God will not be mocked. You will, or sorry, when you sow, you will reap that. And he goes on to apply that to good things that we do. He says in verse 9, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. I'm sure that there are at least a few people here this morning that need this question to be answered and they need this scripture to be read. The question is this though, have you ever wondered if the work that you have done for Christ is making a difference? Have you ever wondered if the work that you are doing on Christ's behalf is making a difference? I have here on this podium an account of the first 100 years of this Baptist church, which I pray, if the Lord tarries, will have an addendum added to it of another 100 years. 
But it's a story, it's an account of all the things that faithful brothers and sisters had done throughout the years. Some of which are even amongst and in, in our midst this morning. The question they may have asked and the question you may have even be asking now as you consider the last 100 years and you consider the next 100 years, you might be saying, is it making a difference? Are the good things, the, the budget meetings, the deacon work, the elder work, getting up and coming in to, uh, to the worship practice, uh, holding babies that need diapers changed and mouths wiped, is that worth it? Is it making a difference? The big picture helps us to see that what we reap in this life is not, all, it's not the end of the story. It's not the end. And our God has promised us, he has said, he will not be mocked. The good that we do in this life, not in order to earn salvation, but the good that we do in this life because it's good and because it's worthy of doing and because it brings worship and glory to God, it will not return void. It will not be empty. And so nothing ever done for Christ is wasted. In this life, it can be easy to think that that's the truth, and it is not. When we see the big picture, when we stop looking at just the here and now, Planted seeds last week, and goodness, nothing's grown, nothing's happened. We're reminded that it will grow, it will bear fruit. It may not be tomorrow, but it will not be wasted. And so long as we are faithful to return to the field that we planted in, we will reap. So it keeps discouragement at bay. It's one of the benefits of a big picture focus. We recognize that we may not reap today. And we may not reap tomorrow, but we will reap. And so it keeps discouragement at bay. Finally, really flowing out of the third benefit is the fourth. And that's this, that a big picture focus, it invites us to rejoice now. A big picture focus invites us to celebrate now. I think of Psalms 30, verses 4 and 5. Psalmist says this, Sing praise to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. He goes on to say, Weeping may tarry for the night. Weeping may endure for the night. But remember, joy comes with the morning. This is a promise that we've received. The joy is coming in the morning, but I'd like to have it now. The book of Philippians says this, that we are to find joy, we are to experience joy in the Lord always, including now. The Apostle Paul says, to answer your question, well, what do you mean? Well, he says, rejoice, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but everything in prayer, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Something we often overlook is this phrase, the Lord is at hand. What does it mean that the Lord is at hand? I believe it simply 
means two things. One, he's at hand. At any point in time, when the church is assembling, the Lord Jesus Christ is there with us. That's the truth. As we sing this mor- sang this morning, he inhabited the praise of his people. And so we know he's here. He's not far away. His hands are not tied. His ears are not stopped up. He's able to see and to hear his people praising and making much of him. And he's near to us in our need. But I think another thing that Paul is trying to help us see is that the Lord is at hand in the sense that his return is near. He's not so far away that this culmination of all things, the restoration of creation that our hearts long for, the setting right of justice and mercy, it's near. And because of that, I think what he's saying is, go ahead and start celebrating now. You know the story. The young boy, he's reading the book. He's halfway through it. It's just getting to the good part. The climax is just racing. It's, it's coming soon where he'll, he'll, the, the tension is mounting. Will the bad guy win? Will the, will the good guys get away? Will, the, will the, the damsel in distress be, will she be rescued? And the mom calls out and says, you need to go do your chores. And he says, but mom, just wait just a few more minutes. You've heard the story. Just wait just a few more minutes. You've, you've lived that life, youngster. Just a few more minutes. No, now. And then you need to get in bed and turn the lights out. But mom, just a few more minutes. I need to figure this out. She says, okay, you're going to have 30 seconds. And so what does he do? Well, he's halfway through. But he needs to know he can't, he can't, he won't be able to sleep if he doesn't. So what does he do? He races toward the back of the book. He reads the final page and he says, ah, I see now who wins. And even though in his timeline, as he's read that book, there is still distress. There is still pain. There is still tension mounting. He has skipped to the end. And he's been able to see his big picture has been expanded. And it now includes the restoration of all things. And is that not what we have together, church? And so the Apostle Paul tells us, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Lord is at hand. Go ahead and celebrate now. Go ahead and celebrate now. And so what are the benefits of a big picture focus? Well, as a church, we don't race to be the biggest church. That expands the fastest. We are a church that has our eyes trained on Jesus. We are looking to him because he is the founder and he is the the perfecter of our faith. And all these other things would, would battle for our allegiance, our affection, our focus... We know the beginning of the story and we know the end. And it is culminating in Jesus Christ. And so our eyes are fixed on him. We're challenged to hold nothing back. We brought nothing into this world and we'll take nothing out. And the only thing that lasts forever is the word of God and the souls of men. And so we bring one to the other, holding nothing back, sparing no resource In the midst of all that, we are able to keep discouragement at bay because we know that there is a promise that when we sow, we will reap. It's a promise that's as sure as the sun rises tomorrow. It's a promise that God has given on his own name, and he will not be mocked. 
And finally, as a benefit of having this big picture focus, we can go ahead and rejoice now because we know how it ends. We know how it ends, dear brothers and sisters. We've looked at a biography based on the big picture. Quickly, we just looked at the Apostle Paul's life. A small snapshot of his interaction with the church there in Colossae. His interaction with Epaphras. And we noticed that all three of them, they had a big picture focus. They were willing to give up anything, go anywhere, do anything for Jesus. We've identified the, the big scenes or the big tent stakes or tent poles in the big picture. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration of which we will be a part. And now we're reminded of the benefits. The benefits that are many. Hagerstown Church, we have been a church not just for the last three years. Which I don't know if you re realize this, but Hagerstown Church had its first, the planted church, the three years ago church, had its first service three years ago today. So by God's grace for the last three years, we've celebrated Worship together and made much of Jesus. We've been a big picture church for the last three years. But the reason why we haven't made such a big deal about that is because for the last 100 years, now that we're merged, 130 some years, I think 37, 38 this year, 140 this year, 140 this year, this has been a big picture church. As a matter of fact, I, I, I sent this document out here and I'm going to leave it, I'm going to leave it right here. If you're interested in the history of our church, I'm going to challenge you to come up and read that. Feel free to take that home with you, run somewhere else. But when you're done with it, just bring it back and set it around here. I'd love, to, I'd love for it to float around the church and for us to, to be continue to, to read and see and be encouraged by what God has done over the last 140 years. And I pray that that would stir you up to, to, to dream about how God will use this church and the big picture focus that he has given to us through his word that centered on Christ over the next 140 years. That's who we are, church. That's who he's made us to be. With that in mind, I want to ask you to pray with me now to that Jesus who has given us this focus, the focus that brings us joy and is centered on him. Father, that you would invite us in to be a part of this story. The story of your gospel going forth, making uh, or bearing fruit. Father, it's been taking place for years and years. And you've allowed our story to be woven into that. It's your kindness to us. Father, it's your kindness that you've opened our eyes to see that life is not about us. Father, you've delivered us from that prison. Caring only about our own existence and our, our, our own 70 years and not the legacy of faith that you have given to us that we, by faith, believe will continue to be established here in Hagerstown for Jesus' glory. Father, we thank you for that. You've rescued us, redeemed us, and now you are allowing us to be a part of this restoration. And it is our hope, it's our focus. Father, we pray that for the next 140 years that you'll hold us fast. That you'll keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. And Father, we pray these things joyfully and confidently in the name of Jesus. Amen.